HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Blueprint, the original juice cleanse program to offer different levels of intensity depending on your needs and current diet. For more information, visit Blueprint.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In The Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and it is a hot end of the summer day here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I biked in this morning, and I was uh, very excited, looking forward to seeing uh, an old friend of mine, Giuseppe Vira, who's going to be on the show today, and I'm like, wow. I hope that, you know, I, I'm looking forward to seeing Giuseppe, and I, I know that he's going to bring a wine to taste, but uh, uh, he makes wine up in the Piedmont region, uh, uh, in the Barolo region, even more specifically. He makes uh, some of my favorite wines, and I'm, I'm on the bike. It is hot as I'm sweating. The, the sweat is dripping off of me, and then I get here, and I realize, wait a second. Giuseppe makes my other favorite grape in the world, other than Nebbiolo, a Riesling, and that is what is in front of me right now. Uh, Giuseppe, welcome to the show. <laughs> Grazie, Joe. Buongiorno a tutti. Buongiorno. It's good to have you here. This Riesling, I, I absolutely adore this. I know this is poured by the, gla- by the glass at one of my favorite restaurants, Marea. Um, congratulations on that. I'm just so happy uh, that, uh, that you're here and that I have a glass of Riesling in front of me right now. While I'm cooling down before the world. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I think you, you better... Be scared if we started by a barrel after a bike ride, but yeah, he's this is um this is our little part riesling, which you know it was um I mean it's it has really been a bit of a crazy project, but uh, it's just our favorite white grape. I think uh, when we were younger, we had to you know just just look after family cellar. We found out some two thousand bottles of riesling, and this was. Scary because it was more riesling than Barolo that we were aging, and we are Barolo producers. But that's how my so this was just your family collection because everyone yeah. liked riesling; they were enthusiasts. I mean, we we felt free to open a few of the, I mean, quite a bunch of those bottles, and that's how you know we we all got in love with riesling. 
Wow. Well, I mean, two of my absolute favorite uh, favorite grapes. I want to hear about how such a historic estate, I mean, going back to the early 70s when things were really changing and really happening in the Barolo region, uh, how did you end up uh, planting Riesling? But tell us first a little bit about uh, about what it was like uh, in those early days, probably before you were even born, when the, when oh, yeah. the, when the estate was even uh, founded. Um, and then uh, what it was like to grow up in a, in a great Barolo house. Well, it was, it was just beautiful. And I think this is why I'm, I'm, I'm doing this job, is, is because we, we just breathe, grew up breathing the beauty of, of, of this life. But um, it, was, it has not always been easy in Barolo. Um, in fact, my father was, was a cool Cedarborn guy still had a long haircut like the Beatles, and uh, he was uh, 15 when he decided to leave Torino. So the the big city of Piemonte moved back to to take control of the family heritage. And um, uh, but this was very unusual. It was quite of a scandal. I mean, everyone was kind of escaping from countryside back in the days. And it's really been in the I think mid 80s, late 80s when mm-hmm. things started to change. Yeah, because in the 70s. Uh, if you if your family had a wine estate and you were uh, an ambitious, hardworking, intelligent person, you're like I I'm gonna go to the city. I'm gonna go to college Correct. and go work in you know in some some company. Uh, I'm it, not only was it not you know a, a a well-regarded profession at that time, but if you decided that all right, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna put effort into it and try to make a really good wine. There was there was no real market for for a high quality. Italian wine. Yes, and uh, weather was not helping. I mean, the seventies were really difficult vintages. Uh, you have a few, a few f- fantastic vintages, twenty one, twenty eight, but all over was was difficult. So that really didn't help people, and and that's just how you said. I mean, they were trying to find a, a better, a better life. So for my father, it was just like um, um, taking the the bet, the challenge, and and just jump into vineyards. So was was he more allured by the idea of living a life in the countryside where it's more uh where it's uh you know a little bit more relaxed and you have fresh air as opposed to Torino, one of the major cities of Italy, or was it that he was lured by the wine and he really wanted well, to try to make good wine? He's he's a very cool guy and very serious. So you wouldn't even believe he was like a rebel kid. But um if if he starts talking then he'll Usually, it dropped the story that uh, he was reading books of the local writers, and they were describing this farming life that was made of eight months a year of very hard work, and then four months of calm winter life with a lot of snow outside. And was dreaming himself, you know, listening to music, uh, reading books, sitting in front of a fireplace. So I think that really tuned him. Um, and I mean, it's it never worked that way. I mean, we we work day and night every day of the year, but <laughs> but. As it was going on, I think it was just a growing love for for the farming, for the winemaking. It was, you know, it started by a little poetry. It was fifteen. I mean, I, I'm still impressed by thinking he was so young when he basically decided how he wanted his life. He was to fifteen be. years old when he decided yeah. this. Yeah, and uh, wow. I mean, the family tried to convince him. Well, if you really like countryside, you should be a v- veterinary, which was, you know, a bit <laughs> in the in the hierarchy of small villages, you get you get the mayor, and then you get the doctor, and then you get the veterinary. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, he just couldn't stand it. I mean, he fainted about three times. The first three times he went with a veterinary, he was given a chiquetto, 
Chiquette is like the shot of grappa, as in the local dialect. And after the third one, I said, well, guys, if you want an alcoholic son, just keep sending me there, or I, I better do what I like to do. And this is about when everyone in the family gave up and they said, okay, go. Um, and uh, he got rid of sharecroppers and started farming. This was 70, 69, 70. Yeah. And uh, so tell us a little bit about because that's, that's something that I think um, not a lot of people understand, this, this sharecropping system that was uh, re- a remnant of the medieval system Correct. that really lasted until those late, the late 60s, early 70s. Th- was it called the Mezzadria also up in Piemonte, or is that more the central Italy term for no, it? No, Mezzadria is Italian for, for it. So basically these were farmers who didn't own the land. They farmed it on behalf of the owners. And sharecropping means uh, the production was split in equal parts uh, between the, owning, the, the family that owned the land and the family that farmed it. Uh, but you can imagine this was a system that basically drove everyone to just push in quantities and yields. The, the more you produce, the better it was because then you just got half of it. So it was a system that uh, eventually didn't make anyone happy and certainly didn't improve quality. So I think that that's part of the story of Piemonte. I mean, Piemonte started to deliver quality when people started to be farmers or of their own. And so the focus was on what you were producing, not just how much you were yeah. doing. And I, I, I tried to describe what was going on, because this is such an interesting time. You know, the end of the Mezzadria. Um, you have uh, first Italian industrial large-scale commercial wines coming into play, but then very shortly after, you have the wines of Australia and South America making very large-scale wines. Um, so Italy realizing slowly that it, it, it can't compete with, with commercial wines, with yeah. very, expensive, very inexpensive wines. So Italy reala- realizing that you need to compete on, on quality. And that's where I think Italy's competitive advantage. So you have those kind of things happening. And then just really amazing, interesting, passionate personalities. And uh, Giuseppe and I were, were talking about some of the, the people we very much admire um, uh, especially in Piedmont. In Piemonte, there's just like extraordinary people like Bartolo Mascarello, Romano yes. Levi, uh, so Aldo Canterno. Uh, yeah, they, they, these are the iconic winemakers. I mean, the legends to me. And I'm, um, I'm you know, I'm all about it uh, because uh, these were, these were just like real characters who were coming from a hard life, you know, they, most of them had been experiencing World War II. Uh, I mean, that's the generation of my grandfather, so basically, uh, you know, fighting the fascism for most of them. Um, a guy like Aldo Conterno had been emigrating to the States very at a very young age, and they were there. It was like uh, b- being on the prairies of the Far West, and they they had these century-old farming of vineyards, but uh, everything had to be built. And I think this is what makes it magic to me. And every time I drink these old Barolos, there's no many you can find anymore, unfortunately. Well, um, you just have to to know the right collectors because they've been, they're gone. Um, Even for, I guess, wine lists in restaurants, Mm -hmm. it's not easy, right, to find back in vintages of the 50s and 40s. You know, it's not easy. And I I think that... um, when you do find them, there's some of the the great values when you when you compare them to 
other wines of that age, whether it's Burgundy or Bordeaux. Um, but I think part of the other challenge is that not many, you didn't have people collecting Barolo back in that day, the way that you no. did maybe Burgundy or, or Bordeaux. So, um, people would drink them and, uh, they they maybe say you had a, a seller of a certain size you'd put your burgundy and bordeaux in that and you maybe you didn't you didn't pay as much attention to your to your nebbiolo wines if you if you even had them so they i think that sometimes the storage conditions could be not not as great so when you do find one it's thrilling and yeah and yeah and uh and you know i what i love to do is when i taste when i when i have the chance to taste these wines is try to put myself in the shoes of these old folks and what what were they thinking what um, what were their conditions, their tools in the cellar? I mean, just just an uh, example, uh, stainless steel was was not used at the time. So they had copper tools, and then everything was wood, and it was chestnut, not even oak, oak barrels. So it was a whole different game in a way. Uh, but then you taste the wines now, and they're just thrilling and magic, and they make you dream. And I think this is the beauty of, of this like, pioneering era, even if it's... If it's only 40, 50 years ago, but um, that's, I mean, I'm in love. I, I, I love to, you know, just keep spending time with these old mm-hmm. folks and learning as much as I can. And it, it's amazing how uh, resilient a lot of them are. Kind of, I feel like the Piemontese are, are strong people <laughs> yeah. as well. It's strong-headed, strong to, you know, to, to, uh, uh, to live uh, this farming lifestyle. But uh, these wines are strong wine so i think that even you know maybe it wasn't stored the best but the wines are still you know the very old ones are still are very expressive and have a lot to say totally totally and it's true what you're saying about piemonte characters i mean we we have a name in italy uh, the the people from my region for being kind of gentle to everyone but then very shy very reserved um uh, your closest neighbor might not be your best friend this is because 200 years before something happened <laughs> among <laughs> your ancestors and you know these things kind of i mean it's it's a region of trading but it is a region that literally geographically is protected by mountains on three sides out of four so there's always been like a kind of a tight a close um culture and this is beautiful i think it preserves so much richness and diversity uh but it also speaks of the character of the people and the wines you know what, wait what's that term you said there's a name for it in italy um is it like a hard-headed or what's the name what do you No, think? is it yeah it's, it's a sorry yeah it's not a name but it's more like a phrase like a phrase okay yeah and it's is about being uh <laughs> being gentle to everyone but then very reserved okay. you don't you you almost never speak straightforward this okay. is this is what okay so now it's the early 70s um your father decides that he's going to start this winery well late 60s early 70s 72 is the first vintage I correct believe. and uh and how does he make the wine at the beginning and then how has that evolved over the years well um imagine him um still having to attend high school classes so basically going back and forth from torino to to barolo uh, the the equipment he had was very limited. Actually, until '71, he started by farming vineyards, and and the reason why he started in '72, which you know is is just the most difficult vintage of the century in Piemonte. You won't. I mean, Barolo was not allowed to be produced in '72. So, the negociant, the the guys who used to buy grapes and and vinify, make wine, they were basically 
uh, offering nothing, and he, he rebelled. The, the year before, 71, he had uh, gone for the first organic certification in the region, which was much more naive than today, but basically he uh, just felt, no, I'm not going to give all my work and efforts for, for nothing. I'm going to try and make my own wine. And then I heard once that he, he was happy every, all of his friends drank his wine before the following spring because that was his first vintage was a very weak vintage. Basically, uh, the wine had no potential to, <laughs> to age. But that's how he started. The tools were, were tools that were inherited with the farm. So some old casks, chestnut casks, very little equipment. Bottling was done by, by gravity. Um, and, um, and a little at the time, things just evolved. But I think what really drives the style of what we do, the, the spirit of what we do is still his memory of uh, his grandfather tasting wine during fermentation about six, eight, nine times a day. So every hour he was at the, at the barrel tasting a little wine. And the grandmother was obviously complaining and saying, uh, Carlene, uh, if you keep tasting your wine, we won't have enough for the winter. <laughs> um, but that little, you know, ugly glass that was on the, on the barrel and the, and the thing of tasting so frequently is what drives our idea of wine. It's not really about how equipped you are. Uh, but certainly we're looking for cleaning. Cleaning in the cellar is, is just like a kitchen. You, you need to be proper, precise in what you do. But then it's about tasting the wines, listening to the wines, observing what's happening in the fermentation. This is, I think, more important than any tool or equipment you, you could have. Yeah, well, Giuseppe, you share a, uh, a, a love and an interest in the, in the history of, of your area uh, with me. I, I think it's, uh, it's fascinating. Um, but I want to hear more about what you're doing now, uh, but after we take just a short break. We'll be right back. It's summertime. It's summertime. The bars are closing. The bars are closing. All the doors are open. All the doors. Blueprint is the original juice cleanse program to offer different levels of intensity depending on your needs and current diet. Designed to purify and detoxify, Blueprint Cleanse is made from the freshest 100% raw and USDA certified organic ingredients, cold pressed to retain nutrients and flavor. Blueprint also offers a line of organic juices, cold-pressed and raw, in a variety of fruit and vegetable combinations, and available in individual bottles. Blueprint Cleanse is available at Whole Foods Market and many other retailers across the U.S. To learn more about their line of organic cleanses, juices, and other products, visit them today at Blueprint.com or call them at 866-774-6831. That's 866-774-6831. Work hard, play hard, cleanse, repeat. Favorite mask, put on your favorite mask. And all at once it's Halloween. And all at once it's Halloween. And take her up in your lovely arms. And do all kinds of terrible things. Well, we're back on In the Drink, heritageradionetwork.org. I'm um, here with 
Giuseppe Vira of the uh, great Vira winery up in Barolo in Piedmont, Italy. Um, I've been sipping the, this whole first first segment on uh, on this outstanding Lange Riesling. It is perhaps the most refreshing wine in the world right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> that's bike ride, Joe, but thank you. <laughs> Uh, th- thank you, uh, because thank you for bringing it. It's truly, truly outstanding. Can you just tell us a little bit about? Uh, you said your family loved Riesling, and yes. uh, did you purchase a Riesling vineyard in the area? Did you decide to plant? Like, how did how did Riesling come about the Lange? Because it's not something that's that's very common. No, absolutely. I mean, this this was the first ever planted in Piemonte. But um, it is planted, and we, we did so, and uh, we did plant it in uh, 85, 86, and we planted it on a Parolo vineyard, uh, but that had some special features. It is an east-facing vineyard uh, in the Fossetti designation. It is high on the hill, about 450 meters, that would translate in 11, 1,200 feet, and it is covered by a, a little forest, most important. So by 2 p.m., the shadow covers the vineyard and we don't really have the burning effect of afternoon sunshine so um, all of these conditions plus a very well drained soil it all made us thought, think of why don't we produce a white wine here i mean we, we felt it was not suitable for nebbiolo in any case but there was some great microclimate conditions and white wine we had to just think a second that's riesling and that's how we planted it um and uh I, I love how it is a you know you think of riesling as being a grape that's very aromatic. Um, sometimes it could be even flamboyant, but this is a riesling that to me is very Piemonte. It's uh, it's lots of minerality. It's yes. a little austere. It's very dry, um, but it's seriously the perfect thing after a hot bike ride. I mean, it's. Um I have to admit, in the first few years, we were hiding each single bottle we had in the tasting room. When I mean, Piemonte is pretty frequent to see, you know, German wine lovers or Swiss wine lovers driving down, fill their cars, and go back home. And uh, I remember we we were so scared of German German people seeing that we were making a riesling in Piemonte. We were pulling out bottles from the tasting room and just hiding in the, in the back in the back of 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 the hall, of the building and. Um, because if they found you were making Riesling, they look at you in such a way you felt guilty for days. <laughs> but over time, we just, you know, you can't hide forever. So we, we started to to let people taste it. And uh, we always felt this is a flag that from Piemonte says, Viva Riesling, long life to Riesling, is about our love for the grape. We're not trying to imitate Rheingau or Mosul or Wachau, any one region, although it is a tribute to those to, to, to the great Riesling but I agree with you it is Piedmontese I mean it, it, that's what we love about Riesling is a terroir transparent varietal so it speaks of the land where it's planted yeah yeah it, it is truly outstanding I have to, I have to say that uh, a couple of nights ago I really enjoyed your dolcetto uh, <laughs> with with my girlfriend Alyssa we uh we we loved it. we just moved into a new place and popped it on on the sofa and it was it was awesome. It was one of those why you know Dolcetto is usually a, a, a grape that uh, you don't think too much about as you as you drink it, but the conversation stopped and we were both like, "Whoa, that is good." Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think there's a beauty in Dolcetto. It's not it's not that sophisticated. Uh, sometimes it's a bit misunderstood varietal. I think it is like the ugly duckling of Piemonte varietals, 
but uh, as just like the aggregate duckling can blossom you know, in a beautiful swan. And this is, I think, when you give the the right amount of love to the chet, you plant in a vineyard, you care about the vinification, just don't forget it in a, in, a, in a barrel for too long, then it can just be joyful. And I think this end of summer being pretty warm, I'm still thinking of drinking quite a bunch of dolcetto. Dolcetto, and it's a grape that's you know, usually think of of grapes to of wines to put a little bit of chill on as wines that don't have a lot of tannin, kind of soft, joyful, like Beaujolais kind of wines. I know yes. you're a Beaujolais fan as well <laughs> as I am, uh, but I feel like dolcetto, despite it's having some good tannin, you can you can chill it a little bit more than other wines. Totally, totally. I mean, it does have the tannins. Uh, Dolcetto is kind of a misleading, I, I hope my English is correct, but kind of misleading name because it sounds like the little sweet one. Uh, that's the grape. I mean, the grape is fantastic to drink on its own and it's very sweet. But indeed it is. It has a kind of little grape of tannins, uh, but then has a low acidity. And this is what allowed us to chill it a little bit and what makes mm-hmm. it fun to pair with all vegetables because it's like... With vegetables? I think it's being low acidity. Mm-hmm. And if you think of tomato or... Tomato, tomato sauce that has that bright effect it just pairs well together that is very uh very very interesting um before we go on we have a uh, uh because I, I say it's interesting because usually my my thinking with pairing with tomato sauce is to find a wine that has high acidity so it stands up to the tomato sauce but your thought is that the tomato sauce can balance out the wine the wine can balance out the tomato sauce well yeah i i mean is Two different approaches. I, um, I think you know it's sometimes homemade vegetable tomatoes can be pretty bright, and I just think um, sometimes a wine that doesn't add on the acidity but um, actually balanced for the for the lower uh, could be could be an option. Uh, but hey, this is one. It's it's the beauty of trying and working and finding new pairings. It's, it's just. Just, just a beautiful one. Yeah, uh, constantly, uh, I'm constantly uh, surprised. Something that maybe uh, something that I just found out about. I, I'm sure that plenty of people already know about this pairing, but uh, I know that up in Piedmont, you drink, you, uh, eat, you guys eat a lot of carne crudo, um, yes. I, which I really like a, a raw, hand chopped uh, beef um, with an aromatic white wine. Maybe even with your riesling. I've had some delicious recent pairings. An aromatic white wine, like a Gruner Veltliner yeah. uh, or or Riesling, <laughs> with Carne Crudo. I, I'm sure this is not something that that you guys do frequently, but I, I, I found that this I, is a, a great pairing. Actually, yeah, I just see it working perfectly. I mean, it's um, the Carne Crudo is is one of my absolutely favorite dishes as well. It's and I just see summertime working perfectly with with something yeah. refreshing and lively and yeah, aromatic. So that was something that I that I'm totally baffled by in uh, in Piedmont as well. You have uh, this very meat heavy cuisine. So in the summer, rather than eating maybe more of the stewed meat, you have like raw meat. It's still yes. meat, but it's just like <laughs> a little fresher. And, and well, we get spoiled by this breed, which is called uh, Razza Piemontese, mm-hmm. and uh, it is fantastic. It's it used to be back in the days what we call triplice attitudine. So. It had three attitudes, or um, this is not proper veterinary translation, but it meant that the same breed was used to work the vineyards and the fields, was used to produce meat and to produce milk. And it was refined to a point where it, it, it just 
it's uh, the most beautiful meat. And indeed, I mean, Piemontese cuisine is like that. Is I think we got kind of the best of Italian cuisine. So the love for the respect for raw ingredients, but then in in the winter it becomes a little more Frenchish because of the proximity. So sauces, long cookings. Um, but I invite everyone just to try a good Piemontese. Yeah, and it's, uh, I think a must, uh, a must do. And those more wintry, saucy dishes, uh, extraordinary with uh, with Barolo, obviously, in which which we have right in front of me right now, the Choretta Vineyard 2008 Barolo. Yes. Yeah. Well, this this is a, a very tiny production for us. The the label is called Luigi Baudana. So you see it's a say bottle by G.D. Vaira, which is my family estate. But when we started this project, we, we wanted to respect the heritage and the story. So basically, this is a um, super garages winery, only four hectares. There'll be like eight acres in the heart of Serra Lunga d'Alba. Baudana is the name of the family of one of their vineyards and the village itself. So you can imagine, they don't even know if the family gave them to the village or the other way around. This is how old it is. And Luigi and Ferina were looking for someone to bring on the winery, give a future. We, my parents and the family had a name for respectful people. That's how they asked us, which was unheard because you usually would like your land to be on the market and go for the best bid. They were choosing us. So we felt very humbled. It was a bit of a spy game situation because then we were kind of dating the, the two families to see if we could be a good match. And uh, they were coming visit our vineyards. We were gone and visit their vineyards. So I offered to spend the harvest with them in 2008, which is the, the vintage we were tasting. And uh, we didn't want to create rumors. So I was parking the car like 600 feet away uh, at 7 p.m. I'd been harvesting all day long at Vaira. And then with a hat on, run into the cellar door because the village is like 50 people, but everyone is doing everyone else's business. And we didn't want them to have suspects. So I was running in the cellar, working vinification until 11 p.m., you know, breathing carbon dioxide, which is the, the cellar is extremely tiny. And, and then by then we'd, we'd been finished and I would run home for a late dinner. And that's, that's why I say it's a spy game because it was like really trying to keep it undercover and we liked each other so much that, you know, when I, we met official, we were going to bring on Baudana project. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, it's it's hard not to like you. I have to say, uh, we I had dinner or we had brunch with uh, with uh, our friend Jen Chin, uh, who also works with you here in the states, and uh, and my girlfriend. And I have to say, it is a good thing that you are married uh, because uh, <laughs> Go on. Alyssa was uh, talking about how handsome you are for the rest of the day. <laughs> so uh, handsome, uh, super nice guy, makes incredible wines. Uh, I'm really glad that, that it worked out uh, with this because this wine is, is outstanding. Now, you know, I would think that a young Barolo, especially from a great vineyard, a great crew, the Saralunga, will have some power and intensity and would need some time to age, but you just pop this bottle open and I'm kind of baffled because it is so uh, expressive and so drinkable. Yeah. Uh, if if you had not opened it, I would have said, wait, let's like wait five, ten years and then maybe pop it open. But why, why is this like just so pretty right now? Well, th this is, I'd say it's a very personal take on the wine, but the way we feel is that a great wine is never too young to be drunk. Uh, and that Barolo can be austere and can be rich and powerful, can have structure without being overwhelming. I, I, I think he's 
is about the ego and the wine. Uh, we don't want the wine to be an expression of ego. We don't want it to be a bodybuilding, plenty of tannins, over-extracted. So we're looking for finesse from the beginning. And I think uh, if you look to our cousins of Burgundy, finesse uh, doesn't play against aging potential. So we can have a wine which is elegant in, in its youth and still age beautifully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and do you think that the vintage has any factor in this? Because I, I find that um, there are still some 2006s, two years older, that uh, that are, are not yet, you know, that are so austere and so tannic that they're not yet ready to drink. And then 10 years before that, 1996s, um, I've had I've had some <laughs> wines recently where I'm like God that needs even more time. So is it yeah. a, is it a vintage thing as well, or is it more your your desire for no, that? It, that it's, it's both. Okay. It's both, and they're definitely playing well together in such a vintage. I mean, it's our desire, but no doubt, 08 is is quite a spectacular vintage to me. I mean, I love 06. I'm freaking in love with 96, but. Um, I think the beauty of a weight is to be fruit transparent, which which is kind of unique character. So this makes the one even more, yeah, transparent, open, uh, smiling already today. Well, I I have to agree that 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 is the case. I'm I'm kind of dumbfounded because I was not expecting to enjoy this as much <laughs> as I did, just because it's such a, a young wine and uh, uh, you know I had very high expectations of, of the ageability of it, but kind of one of those wines that you say has a long life, right? A long drinking window. So it's, it's delicious now, but uh, I imagine uh, for quite a long time as well. Uh, Giuseppe Viret. Wow. Thank you. Grazie. You are the best. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) I am so, uh, so thankful that you're on the show today. Um, You can find the Viro wines at our restaurants, uh, but uh, look for them wherever you uh, purchase wine. Uh, Really, really outstanding. I think for these for these last few hot days, that that Riesling, or uh, even throughout the winter, I'm probably going to be drinking that. Uh, anyway, thanks again. Uh, Joe, grazie. I, I don't want to see you go, but we have to finish up. Uh, this has been in the drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.